One of, my, uh, one of my favorite stories is told of a couple who had two little boys, ages 8 and 10. And uh, they were always getting in trouble. They knew if anything was going on at school, anything in the neighborhood, that somehow or another their two little boys had themselves right in the middle of it. They just had a knack or a nose for trouble. And they were getting frustrated. They didn't know what to do. And finally, out of desperation, the, the wife said to the husband, she said, I heard that there's a church down the street who has a pastor who's really good at, at disciplining children. He's had a lot of success with troubled children. And, uh, you know, I think we should take him to see him. The father said, well, you know, we've tried just about everything else. That can't hurt, so let's go ahead and set it up. So they set it up, and, and the pastor agreed, but he agreed to see him only one at a time. He wanted to see the youngest one first to try to figure out what it was that was going on in their life and figure out what they could do about it. So they called the meeting, and the mother took the little boy, and it was right down the street. They walked, and they talked as they went, and they went into the, the pastor's office, and the pastor told the mom to wait outside, and the little boy came in and said, uh, you know, son, let me ask you a question. Where is God? Where is God? And the little boy looked up like, didn't know what to say, and the pastor said to him again, it's a simple question, where is God? And the boy again didn't answer. And in fact, he started trying to shuffle on his feet, looking around the room, making funny faces, and the pastor was getting a little bit, eh, a little tense over this particular confrontation, and finally looked at him, he shook his finger in his face, he said, son, I'm asking you a simple question, where is God? that the little boy jumped up, ran past the mom, out of the office, down the street, into his house, ran past his brother, up into his room, into his bedroom, ran into the closet, and slammed the closet door shut. The older brother sees this going on. He goes, what in the world happened? He goes running upstairs, goes in the brother's room. He can't find him in the bedroom. He hears him in the closet making some noise. He goes, opens the closet door, and his brother says, come in here quick. Shuts the door, and his brother said to him, what, what happened at your meeting? He said, I don't know, man, but we are in big trouble this time. We're in really big trouble. I said, what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean we're in big trouble? What do we do? He said, I don't know, but God's missing, and they think we had something to do with it. <laughs> I love that story. You know, aside from being a funny story, it's also one that could have conveyed a great spiritual lesson had the pastor been able to get his point across. Had he been able to get his point across, those two boys at a very early age could have learned a very valuable spiritual truth. The question that you've got to ask yourself is, where is the pastor heading with the question, where is God? What was he trying to get across to this young man so that he understood something that basically would change his life if he had believed it and if he had lived according to what he was trying to teach him? The point that he was trying to make was a very simple one, and it's a very profound one at the same time, and that is this. The pastor was trying to point out to this young boy that God is everywhere. That God is everywhere and that God sees all things. And if we could, as adults, understand that, yet alone teach that same truth to our children, the ramifications are, are tremendous. Because what he was trying to get across to him was this, son, don't you realize that even when your mom and your dad aren't around, even when a teacher isn't looking, even when your boss isn't there, even when your coach isn't on the field, don't you understand that regardless of who in authority is over your life, that God sees everything. That God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He sees the things that we're doing. He even knows the things that we're thinking. The Bible says in Psalm 139, he knows before we're going to get up, whether we're going to get up and make it to church or not. And some of you are thinking, well, why doesn't he wake me? <laughs> because his voice splits the cedars of Lebanon and just blow your head right off your neck. So there you go, just in case you're wondering. Um, but the bottom line is this, that God sees all, that he knows all. And if we could grasp that truth, it could change all of our lives tremendously. Now, the question you've got to ask yourself is, is that really true? Is that something we tell people, especially our children, when we're not going to be around? And don't forget, while we're not here, that God's watching over you. God sees everything you're doing. He knows what you've got planned. He knows what you've got up your sleeves. He knows what you're thinking about doing even when we're gone. He knows the minute we drive out the driveway, whether you're thinking about making some calls or not. God knows all those things. Now, do parents just make that up in an effort to try to change the potential behavior of their children? Or is that a truth that even as adults, we should take to heart? Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll take a look at one suggestion that God gives us as far as this whole idea of God being everywhere. Where is God? He's not missing, and we didn't have anything to do with it. In Hebrews chapter 4, notice what God says in his word. 
Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. The point that's being made is a very simple one, and that's this. God does see all things, and not only does God see all things, but also we will give an account to God for all things. To whom we have to do indicates uh, the, the, uh, the idea or the reality of judgment. We will give an account. We will answer to God for the things that we do. As we continue in our series that's designed to address the question, what does the future hold? We're going to take a look at, uh, we come to two events that are clearly taught in the Bible. Two events that uh, apply to each and every one of us on an individual basis. Two events that will take place in the future that we will experience, but to drastically different conclusions. And the events that we're talking about are specifically these two. As we look to the future and we address the question, what does the future hold? For every one of us, the future holds these two events. As individuals, we will come to a point where we will be judged by God and also where we will be resurrected from the dead. The Bible clearly teaches that judgment and resurrection are two truths that every person, two events that each one of us have to look forward to in our future. Now, though Christians disagree concerning the timing of the resurrection and judgment, all agree about the reality, the absolute certainty of these two events. You know, we've got into the debate and the discussion when it came to whether, you know, when will Jesus return? Will it be pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Will we come before the tribulation? Will we come in the middle of the tribulation? Will we come at the end of the tribulation? You know, all of those who argue differing positions all agree on one reality and one truth, and that's this. He is returning. And also, when we look at the different timing of judgments and resurrections, everyone, no matter what camp you fall into, agree to the absolute certainty that we will all be judged by God and we will all be raised from the dead. And that's what we're going to look at in this particular session as we address these two particular truths that we have to look forward to in the future. The first thing that we're going to look at is the whole idea of judgment. We'll take judgment first and then we'll move to resurrection. First, it's important for us to understand this truth that's taught in the Bible, and that is this. Who will judge us? Specifically, Jesus Christ will be the judge of all individuals. Jesus Christ will judge all of us on an individual basis. Notice what he says in John chapter 5, verse 22, and again in 27, he says this. He says that, uh, moreover, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority, verse 27, to judge because he is the Son of Man. In Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, we read the same thing, the same indication that Jesus will be judged, where it says, you then, why do you judge your brothers? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely I live as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The Bible clearly teaches that God the Father has given all judgment or all authority to judge and execute judgment to Jesus Christ. He will judge unbelievers in regard to salvation, and he will also judge believers to see what rewards they will work and their works will bring about. The point is this. Every individual will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. We will all give an account one way or the other. Now the question is this. Why Jesus as judge rather than God the Father? Because as you read through the Old Testament, you realize that God the Father, or the Ancient of Days, is always put in a position of judging humanity. Whether he was judging individuals, whether he was judging nations, whether he was judging you know, people collectively or individually, God the Father had always given judgment over the, the sins of people. And we see here in this particular case, it says, moreover, if you've got your Bibles, in fact, turn to John chapter 5 for a second. John chapter 5, look at the reason that God gives that Jesus is given the authority to judge. John chapter 5, the same passage starting with verse 22, but specifically look at verse 23. 
Jesus, in verse 22, it says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has, speaking to the Father, given all judgment to the Son. Notice, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Why is it that Jesus Christ is given the authority to execute judgment? The Bible is very clear. So that all, every human being ever created will honor Jesus Christ and give him honor as God to the glory of the Father. Notice in Philippians chapter 2. We touched a little bit on it the last time we were together, but, I, but we need to look at it in context because you will begin to understand how important this is. It is extremely important that every one of us understand this truth, that Jesus Christ is our ultimate judge. In Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5, we read this. It says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. It says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, notice this very carefully. It says, that therefore, why? why? What is it therefore? Anytime you read the Bible, you see the word therefore, you get to understand what is it therefore. It refers back to what was just mentioned, and that is this. Because Jesus Christ had an attitude that we should also have one of humility and submission to God the Father, to God in all, every area of our life, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of obedience, becoming a man and appearing as a man, taking on the form of a bondservant, which, which he did in the role of a servant, and he came to this earth, and the Bible says this truth. It says because he did that and was humbled and, hum and humbled himself to the point of obedience on the cross, to die on the cross, therefore, because of what he did, leaving the glory of heaven and all the privileges and the positions that went along with it, he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a human being. The Bible says, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And it says, and the Word became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth, that Jesus Christ took on human flesh for the purpose of coming to this earth and dying in our place as he died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. All who would believe would be freed and forgiven of sin for those who believe in his name. Because he did that. The Bible says that God highly exalted upon him a name above every other name. And when we're talking about name in the Bible, we're talking not only about the name of Jesus as a name or Christ as a title, Messiah, but we're talking about the name that has to do with authority. God has given to him authority above every other authority that's ever been established on the face of the earth. The Bible says that in the, the heart of the king is in the hands of God. He makes it go any way that he wants. That God raises up one person, puts down another person. And what's amazing about this whole concept is what he's saying is this, that God has given him a name or authority above every other name. That's why the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved from his sin. There is no other name. There's no other authority. There's no other power available that can get you to be forgiven before God and get you into the presence of God. So as we look at this, it says, Therefore, because he humbled himself, he died on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name. Notice it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Why did God the Father give authority to Jesus to judge all and bestow on him a name or authority above every other name? Very simple. So that all of the world would honor him for what he did for us. It's as simple as it gets. Because of the ultimate sacrifice that he made on our behalf, or the behalf of all of mankind, whether you and I believe it or not, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ took on human flesh, came to this earth, lived a sinless, perfect life, and he went to the cross and shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. That's why he took on human flesh. And the Bible says he died in our place for those who believe. His death is sufficient for all of mankind, but it is only going to be for those who believe that will find forgiveness in what he did. That whosoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ will be the judge of all mankind. No person will be able to stand before Jesus on the judgment day and say, I believed in God, I just didn't believe in you. No person will be able to get away with that excuse when they stand before Jesus Christ. Why? Because John chapter 5 said it very clearly. That you, that you know what? That you cannot believe in God the Father without believing in the Son. How many times do you hear people in conversation say, Well, I believe in God. I just don't believe that Jesus is God. Well, I believe in God. I just don't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God or that He is God. I don't believe that Jesus died for my sin. I don't believe that. But I believe in God. And after all, as long as I believe in God and I'm sincere, all roads lead to heaven, Right? Wrong. Wrong. There will, no, one, no one will ever be able to stand before Christ and say, I believe in God, I just don't believe in you. I want you to stop and think with me for a second, carefully, about the ramifications of what the Bible clearly teaches. If what the Bible teaches is true, and I believe that it's so, then all religious organizations and individuals within those organizations that do not believe that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh to die on the cross for the sins of the world and after his death was resurrected or raised from the dead three days later to demonstrate he had the power to forgive sin and also to conquer death. If that religious organization teaches anything other than that and an individual within that organization believes whatever it is that they teach then all who do not believe and deny this truth will stand in judgment day before Christ, condemned for their rejection of Him as their Lord and their Savior. Now, what I'm about to say, I realize, is not going to be politically correct. But the wonderful thing about saying things that are biblically correct are that I don't care about being politically correct. And it's important that we recognize and understand, and I don't say it in a flippant or casual way, but we need to become people who are only concerned with one thing, and that is what does God say, what does his word clearly teach, and I don't care what everybody else says or everybody else is doing or anybody else believes, but the word of God is clear on the subject. And so when you stop and think about the world that we live in today and the movement to make sure that everybody accommodates everybody else's belief, that there is no narrow-mindedness in our thinking, that there is no narrow way, that all roads lead to heaven, no matter what you believe, as long as you believe it, you're sincere, and good stuff comes out of it for your fellow human being, then you know what? Then God doesn't have any choice but to let you into heaven. But what's frightening about that is this, the spirit of Antichrist, which was already in the world as John wrote his first letter, uh, said this, that the spirit of Antichrist is one who denies that Jesus came in human flesh to die for the sins of the world. That false teaching and false doctrines and apostasy are falling away from the truth of Scripture was already taking place. And it's progressively got worse, and we've already seen that. And so I'm looking at this and I'm going, wow, you know what, this includes a lot of people then, doesn't it? A lot of people don't believe that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh that died for the sins of the world, for those who would believe. For example, now we hate to name names, but we're going to. Why? Because how are you going to identify your friends and family members or people that you work with and what they believe if you don't understand what it is that they believe and you think, well, but they're good people. How much do you love these good people? Do you love these good people enough that they would continue to live a lie and one day stand before Jesus Christ and say, man, oh, oh. Nobody ever told me this. Who do religious groups around the world say that Jesus is? Mormons say that Jesus is separate from God, the Father, that he was created as a spirit child by the Father and Mother in heaven and as the elder brother of all men and spirit beings. His body was created through a sexual union between God and Mary, and Jesus was married. His death on the cross does not provide full atonement for sin, but does provide everyone with resurrection. Jehovah Witnesses. This is important to know when these people come knocking on your door, or, 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 you know, or you've got friends or family members. This is critical. It's important that you understand what they believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witnesses. That Jesus is not God. Before he lived on earth, he was Michael, the archangel that God made the universe through him, and on earth he was a man who lived a perfect life. After dying on a stake, not a cross, he was resurrected as a spirit, and his body was destroyed. Jesus is not coming again. He returned invisibly in 1914 in spirit. Hard to disprove that. 
and very soon he and his angels will destroy all of non-Jehovah's witnesses. How about the unification church? Jesus was a perfect man, but he is not God. He is the son of Zechariah. He's not born of a virgin. His mission was to unite the Jews behind him, find a perfect bride, and begin a perfect family. The mission failed. Jesus did not resurrect physically. The second coming of Christ is fulfilled in Sun, Sun Moon Young, who is superior to Jesus and will finish his mission. The Christian science, scientist believes that Jesus was not the Christ, but a man who displayed the Christ idea. Christ means perfection, not person. Jesus was not God and can never become man or flesh. He did not suffer and could not suffer for sins. He did not die on the cross. He was not resurrected physically, and he will not literally return. Unity School of Christianity. He was a man, not the Christ. Instead, he was a man who had a Christ consciousness. Jesus did not die as a sacrifice for anyone's sins. Scientology, Jesus is rarely mentioned in Scientology. Jesus was not the creator and not an operating thetan. Did not die for the sins of mankind. New Age believes the same thing. Jesus is not one true God. He is not a savior, but a spiritual model, a guru, who is now an ascended master. He was a New Ager who tapped into divine power in the same way that you and I can. Judaism, Jesus is seen either as an extremist false prophet, a false messiah, or a good but martyred Jewish rabbi. Jesus Christ is a teacher, according to Hindu, or a guru, an avatar. He is the son of God, as are others. His death does not atone for sins, and he, and he did not die or raise from the dead. Harry Krishna, Jesus is not important. Uh, transcendental meditation. Jesus is not uniquely God. Like all persons, Jesus had a divine essence. Unlike most, he discovered it. Christ didn't suffer and couldn't suffer for people's sins. Buddhism, Jesus Christ is not a part of this belief. They believe generally Jesus as an enlightened man. Islam, Jesus is one of a, up to 124,000 prophets sent by God to various cultures. Abraham, Moses, and Mohammed are others. Jesus was born of a virgin, but he is not the son of God. Sinless, not divine or God himself. He was not crucified. He is referred to as Messiah and Ayatollah. Uh, Jesus will return in the future to live and die. And it goes on and on, but the point that I'm trying to make is a very simple one, and that is this. The Bible does not teach that, that all beliefs or all roads lead to heaven, regardless of how sincere we may be. The Bible, in fact, is very narrow in that it teaches a very, very narrow road to heaven or the presence of God or the forgiveness of sin. And the Bible specifically teaches that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus teaches that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes unto the Father but through me. Jesus is very narrow in his perspective as far as what it takes for a person to be found pleasing to God and to enter into the kingdom of God. Now also, out of fairness, I must also make this point, and that is this. Even though you may come to a Bible teaching church and have heard the same thing, that there's only one way to be forgiven, and that's by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, just because you come and hear it doesn't mean that that's going to get you in because you must personalize it and invite Christ into your life to, for, for the forgiveness of your sin. There will be those who go to these other churches or these other organizations, and they are led astray and they are led far from the truth of God. There are also those who come and they hear the truth, but they never respond to it, and they will just be as lost as anybody anywhere else that's going whatever direction they're going. We need to recognize and understand something, and that is simply this. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to God's forgiveness, and that's believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that he took our place on the cross. And why is that so important? Because God says it's important. Why is it important that he honors Jesus Christ and he is the judge of all humanity? Because as all of humanity individually stands before him one day in the future and they look at, his, at, the, at, the, at the, the scars on his head from the crown of thorns that was smashed on his head and they see the stripes on his back, the Bible says, for it's by his stripes we are healed. And when they look and they see the nail prints, the nail impressions in his wrists and in his feet and as they look at the, the, the hole in his side from when the, the, the soldier's sword stabbed him on the cross, they will never never be able to stand before him and say, your death on the cross wasn't for my forgiveness. They will look upon him whom they pierced, the, the Jews are told, and one day they will weep for what they did to Messiah. The Bible says that every human being will stand before Jesus Christ, and they will look at him who has suffered and died on the cross in their place, and they will be without excuse. Jesus Christ has given the authority to judge all of humanity because of what he did in our place on the cross. We need to recognize that and we need to understand that. It's important because in this day and age that we live in, that truth is so watered down. Jesus has given authority to judge so that all may honor him and rightfully so. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 for a second. Hebrews chapter 9. As we look at what God has to say about why Jesus is the ultimate judge. Hebrews 9 verses 24 through 28. Read these words. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He is our great advocator. He is our defender. For those of us who have put our faith and trust in him, he stands before the throne of God and he defends us before the enemy who continually accuses us of, God, how can you allow that person ever into your presence? Look what they're doing today. And Jesus Christ is our great defender who says, but it doesn't matter because they put their faith and their trust in me. See, nor was it that he should often offer himself often, notice that, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has manifested himself. Manifesting means he has appeared. He has appeared in human flesh. And the word became flesh and appeared before us. It says he has appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ does not need to be offered up daily as a pleasing sacrifice to God. He has appeared once for the purpose of removing sin from the face of the earth and from those who believe in him. One time and one time only. We don't have to continually say, Lord, please enter my life again. Please forgive me again. Please, Hey, you know what? He came once. And the child of God, the first time in the sincerity of their heart, when they ask God to forgive them and invite Christ into their life, they are a child of God to those who believe in his name, and they are a child of God for all of eternity. You never lose that relationship with God because his death once was sufficient for our sins. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and then after this comes judgment. I want you to understand that because it's appointed for man to die once. Just as it was appointed for Christ to die once, and his death would be sufficient for the forgiveness of sin, every human being will die once. And then what? Comes judgment. There are no do-overs. There are no, let me go back and do it again. It is appointed, you die once, and then comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Because of his humanity. In John 5, 27, it also says, and he has given him authority to judge because what? Because he is the son of man. That title that Jesus often used of himself had him identifying himself with us. Do you realize when you stand before Jesus one day, you won't be able to say to him, but, but you don't understand what it's like to be a human being. You don't get it. The Bible says, oh, yes, he does. We can never say, but you've never walked in my footsteps. Because Jesus Christ can say, oh, yes, I did. See, because he knows our weakness, he can be a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He understands exactly. He realizes that we are but dust. He realizes how frail we really are. He realizes how hard it is to be a human being suffering with a sin nature that can't free itself from the problems of this world. He understands that because he was here and he was tempted just as we were, and yet he sinned not. He understands what it takes. He understands why he had to offer himself. Because you know what? In and of ourselves, we are hopeless. If he hadn't come and died for our sins, all of us would be condemned before God for all of eternity. That's why he has the honor that he has. That's why he will judge every human being. That's why every person will stand before him and recognize that those scars were for them. And for those who did not believe, they will regret that. They will glorify God and call Jesus Lord, but it'll be to their condemnation, for it'll be too late. There are no do-overs, and there is no chance to make it right. They will have rejected the only gift that God ever offered them, and they will be separated from him for all of eternity. See, we don't like to hear things like that in our culture because we live in a culture where there are no longer absolutes. Nothing's right, nothing's wrong, whatever you want to do, and it's so stupid and nonsensical, it's easy to be able to explain how, how ridiculous that is. If there's one in authority, he calls the shots. Whether you believe it or not or accept it or not, he sets the standards. You can't come in, you can't go to work when you please if your boss tells you what time to be there and what time you can leave. You can't do what you want to do. You can't go to school when you want, leave when you want, come when you want. You can't show up for practice when you want. You can't do anything as long as the person in authority is setting the standard and saying this is the way it's going to be, and I will measure your performance by my standard. I don't care what you're saying. 
So all these people all over the world sit in the yard, you know what, God, we don't like your standard. We'll just come up with our own standard, and you're going to have to judge us according to our standard. And he says, no, you don't get it. I will judge you according to one standard, and that's my standard, and that is whether or not you've believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Notice this, believers will not come into judgment. This is important to understand. It says that whoever in John 3.18, remember what Jesus said this, uh, and this follows John 3.16 where it says, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It goes on to say, for Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it. Why? Because the world has been condemned already. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, speaking of Christ. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Do you realize that every person that's born into this world is born condemned before God? The Bible says, just as sin entered through one man, Adam, so sin entered into all of humanity, that every one of us are born condemned before God. I want, you need, we need to understand this. It's not that you screwed up somewhere along the line, and now all of a sudden you're condemned before God. Hey, we're all born condemned. And we're all on the road to hell and, and judgment. And we're all on the road to the lake of fire for all of eternity. But because of God's great love and his mercy, he sent Jesus Christ to intercept us on that path for those who would believe. But those who do not believe come into judgment. It's important that we recognize that. Notice what he says in John 5, 24. I'll tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. It's important that you recognize and understand what's being taught here is very simple, and that is the difference between going to heaven and the difference between going to hell. Death and life. Every one of us will live eternally. All of us. That's just a question of where we will spend that eternity. You will either spend it in the presence of God in heaven for all of eternity, or you will spend it separated from him in what the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire for all of eternity. But all of us have eternal life. But when the Bible talks specifically of eternal life, it's talking about the essence or quality of life. The quality of life that we will have in heaven is obviously 180 degrees different from the quality of life that those will have in the hell or the lake of fire. We need to understand that. Now, this promise where it says that we will not stand as believers before the judgment seat of Christ, or before the great white throne judgment or the judgment, does not eliminate all judgment for the believer. And in two weeks, I'm going to talk about that. Every person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ for the purpose of getting rewards for the things that we, did, that we have done subsequent for putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Every one of us will stand before that judgment seat. Listen to me. If you are a child of God, you have, you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, it is critical that you understand how God will evaluate your life here on earth. When you stand before Jesus Christ, you need to understand how he will evaluate and reward you for what you did. So in two weeks, we're going to talk about how God, what his standard is of evaluation. I want to know it. If I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for my life, I at least want to know, God, how are you going to evaluate me? Because I can't come to him and say, well, I thought you'd evaluate me this way. And say, well, where did you come up with that? Because in my word, it's very clear that I will evaluate you this way. And so as we understand that, then we need to be working towards an evaluation that will be pleasing to God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want to know how he's going to evaluate me because if I'm thinking I'm doing something, he's going to evaluate me and he's not, I'm wasting my time. And the Bible says we better redeem our time wisely because we only have this one life to live in order to enter into that judgment where he will reward us for what we do. There are a lot of us who are here today who think, you know what, I'm doing good and God's going to judge me and he's going to evaluate me and he's going to reward me for what I'm doing and he's going to look at you and say, well, I never told you that. Why don't you read my word? I laid it all out very clearly for you. Here's how I'm going to judge you. Here's how I'm going to evaluate you. So what were you doing? Wasting your time doing all the other stuff that you were doing. You only have so much time. You can only do so many things. You might as well make it the productive things that are pleasing to God. That's the point that he's going to make to every one of us. Now, as we look at this, what's, what's wonderful truth is this. Uh, believers will not come into judgment. Whoever believes him is not condemned. In fact, you know what the Bible says in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, it says this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is exactly the opposite of what we find in John 3, 18. For those who do not believe, they are condemned. For those who do believe, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's a wonderful truth. If you believe and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will never be judged for sin 
but we will be judged for what we've done in this lifetime subsequent to our trusting in Christ as our Savior. Now for those who do not believe, unbelievers will be condemned when they are judged. Very clearly and very plainly, the Bible says in John 5.29 as an example, he says, and to come out those who are dead, those who have done good will rise to live, those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, follow with me for a second, because Revelation 20 talks about the same idea, and that's this. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. It says, And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Now the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I want you to, to follow this very carefully and understand this, because what we had already learned to date, we're going to tie it all together. Then I saw a great white throne. This is at the end of the millennium, which we've talked about the last couple of times. It says, Then at the end of this thousand years, I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it is Jesus Christ, as we just learned, for all judgment has been given to him. And earth and sky fled from his presence. So where this judgment takes place, I'm not real sure. It's not on the earth. It's not in heaven. Uh, it's somewhere, and the Bible doesn't indicate where this judgment actually takes place, but it indicates that the judgment is a certainty. It says, and it, and it fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. You know, death is a great equalizer, and the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment, will also be a great equalizer. Every human being, no matter how great their status when they were on this earth, will appear just as those who are very humble. The most humble of peasants will appear before Jesus Christ as the greatest of all kings. Great and small will appear before him. Why? Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. And the Bible says, standing before the throne, and books were opened. It says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Now there is a book, the book of life, and those names that are not found written in the book of life are standing before this great white throne judgment already. They are already condemned. It's just a matter of now the sentence being executed. They stand at this great white throne judgment because they're already condemned because they've rejected Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And now what God does, he opens the books of that person's life, and they are already already condemned and that's why they're standing there so they're already on the road to hell because they never believed the intervention that Jesus took on their behalf and the road that they were going they never accepted his forgiveness or his death as a forgiveness of their sin so now they stand before God and they will be judged and they will be judged for what they've done now what's fascinating about this is this are there degrees of punishment in hell and I believe absolutely as there will be degrees of reward in heaven, and we'll talk about that in two weeks, there are degrees of punishment in hell. Some of us say, well, I can't believe that I'm, I would go to hell just for rejecting Jesus Christ when Adolf Hitler put six million people to death. I mean, certainly he's got to have a greater accountability than me for the things that I've done. I'm a good person. Hey, the fact that your name's not written in the book of life indicates you're a condemned person. And as I go and see people, or you go and see people in prison, you realize, that, you know what, there are a variety of people who are in prison who have done a variety of things. And some people in our eyes and in the eyes of the law are worse than other people. That's why their sentence is different. But the reality is this, they're still all in prison. And whether they're there for five years or 10 years or 20 years or a life sentence, they're there because they are guilty. Every person that stands before the great white throne judgment has one thing in common, and that's this, they're all guilty before God because they've rejected the forgiveness that can be found and the gift that God offered them in Jesus Christ. Now the books are opened and their life is unfolded before them. And you know what? And they will be judged according to what they did. And the degree of punishment that they will endure for eternity will be decided based on how they live their life. We're going to talk more about that also in a future session. But it's important that we understand that. That unbelievers will be condemned. They're already condemned. I guess technically the best way to put it is they're already condemned. But now their sentence is executed. It says, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, and we'll talk about that in the future as well. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. When we talk about judgment, it's important that we realize everything that we've learned to date, and that's this. The first judgment takes place 
when the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire. At the end of the Great Tribulation, at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, they are thrown alive into the lake of fire where they get a thousand-year jump start on everybody else that will end up in the same place. The Bible says at the end of the thousand years that Satan will be judged after he leads that insurrection against him with the great armies of the world and that he will then be thrown into the lake of fire, which was created, by the way, for Satan and his demons. God, listen to this, God never created hell for any human being to ever occupy it. It is unnecessary. It is a self-inflicted wound for anyone who ends up in hell. They end up there by choice because they have chosen to reject the only forgiveness they can find and the only road that leads to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly teaches that hell was created by God for Satan and his demons, and it was never intended for any human being to occupy hell for all of eternity. Now, I hear jokes all the time, and we'll talk about in the future, I'd rather be in hell having a party with my friends and be in heaven, you know, singing and dancing with people I don't like to be with. Well, you know what? That is, a, that is a very ignorant understanding of the reality of hell. And we'll talk about that. The nations will be judged, and then finally all those whose names are not recorded in the book of life will also be judged. Number four, all will be resurrected. We shift gears here from going to be judged by God to being resurrected from the dead. All will be resurrected, but with different results. John 5, 28 and 29 clearly teaches that don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now people read that and say, well, wait a minute, done good. Well, wait a minute, if you do good, maybe you got a chance. Well, you know what, that's not what it means. It means specifically this, the word done good or the good with a definite article in front of it in the original language indicates this, those who have done the good will rise to live, those who have done the evil will rise to be condemned. What is the good and what is the evil? The good is the moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly teaches Titus 3, 3 through 7, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so none of us can boast. It has nothing to do with works. We can't earn our way into heaven. The good is this, that we believe on him Jesus, whom God has sent. That is the only good that any of us will ever do that's pleasing to God, to enter into the kingdom of God. The second thing is those who do the evil, the only unforgivable sin in the word of God is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God convicting your heart that you need to believe in Jesus Christ, and you deny that, and you refuse to do it. That is the only unforgivable sin. Isn't that a wonderful truth? No matter what you've done in your life, no matter how terrible you think it is, whether people could ever forgive you or not, is immaterial because God's sending Christ to die for you, his death is sufficient for any and all sin that you ever could conceive, that you've ever done, that you ever would do in the future. It was he came to appear and take away sin once and for all. You can always go to God and ask for forgiveness of your sin and ask for Jesus Christ to come into your life. That is a prayer that God will always honor. You are, not, you are never, ever, ever at a point in your life where you feel like, I'm not good enough to go to God for forgiveness. Hey, the fact is, none of us are ever good enough. That's why we go to God for forgiveness. You are never disqualified from the forgiveness of God to those who agree with God, confess their sin, and repent from what they've done. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, we've seen that I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony to Jesus and because of the word of God. These are the tribulation martyrs. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on a forehead or on their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The tribulation believers will be resurrected at the end of the thousand years. It says, and this is the first resurrection. Okay, here's the order or the sequence of resurrection. If you remember about the dead, my brethren, I don't want you to be under informed, but those who have died in Christ will be raised first, then we who are alive at the coming of Christ, if you so choose to do so today, we would still be alive. Some of you would have a head start on the rest of us, because I'm not sure, check your pulse. You may be already ready to go ahead of us. So here's the order of events. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will be caught up in the air. So that's the order of resurrection. 
Now the second thing is, those, tribulation, those uh, Old Testament saints, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, they will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation, and they will also enter the millennium. And then we see the tribulation martyrs, they will also be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. And so those from the church age who are dead in Christ, and we who are alive who will be resurrected at the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, then the Old Testament saints will be resurrected, and then those who died during the tribulation haven't put their faith and trust in Christ. All of these groups will be resurrected at the, end of, at the beginning of the millennium. We will all rule and reign with Christ for the thousand-year reign. So that's the order of resurrection. You know what's interesting is this. Most religions of the world teach the existence of the spirit and soul after death, but Christianity is unique in that it teaches that we will actually have a physical resurrected body. And I think that's fascinating because most religions in the world teach that somehow our bodies capture our soul or spirit and that, you know what, but the Bible teaches that, you know, without our body that man is incomplete. So one day we will be resurrected from the dead. The Old Testament teaches it clearly where Job says, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives and at the last or in the last day, speaking of the last of the tribulation, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand upon this earth and I will see him though I am dead. I will see him through my eyes. I will be resurrected. The patriarchs all understood resurrection. They all wanted to be buried in their homeland so that the moment that they were united with their bodies, they would be standing in the holy land that God had promised their, their, their patriarch, their father Abraham. And when they stood, the first thing they would see is Jesus Christ in their flesh. I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward about being changed in the twinkling of an eye. I'm looking forward to every time I go out and run and I think about this body that's just falling apart and it's just like it's just decaying before me. And, and, and all you got to do is stand and take a shower and look down below you and half of you is already down there. And, it, and, and it's like, man, I, you know, I can't wait to have a resurrected body. And the Bible teaches that we can look forward to that one day. And we're going to talk about what happens to us the moment we die and what we can expect, and we'll get on to this. And I'm going to close with this last thought, and that's this. That believers will be resurrected to eternal life because of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth. John 11, verses 21 through 27, if you recall, the, the context is that the death of Lazarus. And he came, and Lazarus had already died. And, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, you know, if you had been here my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You notice that? She understood that truth, that God had promised that they would be raised bodily from the dead at the last day or the last days of the great tribulation and that they would take their stand upon the earth and that Messiah would usher in his kingdom. They understood that and they longed and looked forward to that day. He says, I know that he will live and rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus used that opportunity to teach her this truth. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You notice that? I am the resurrection and the life. And that he who believes in me, even though one day you're going to die, and death is a separation of soul and spirit from the body, and your body will be left behind unless Jesus comes first for the rapture of the church. But if that doesn't happen, as a normal course of events go for most of us, we will die. And our soul and our spirit will be separated from our body, and that is called death. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he does die. And he looked at her and he asked the question that he is asking you and me, and that's this. Fill in your own name. He said to her, Martha, do you believe this? Martha, do you really believe that in your heart of hearts? Do you really believe the day you die that your soul and your spirit will be present with God? just for believing in me. And she said, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, Jesus asked Peter the exact same question. Who do people say that I am? And Peter said, Lord, they're thinking you're a great teacher. They're thinking you're a prophet. They're thinking you're John the Baptist. Come back. They're thinking you're Elijah. They're thinking all kinds of stuff. And you know what was interesting is that Jesus didn't care what Peter thought everybody else was saying because he brought it down to a personal level again and said, you know what, that's interesting what everybody else is saying, but let me ask you something. 
Who do you say that I am? And Peter looked at him and said, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, I can say this and I can teach this, but the reality is simply this. My words in and of themselves mean absolutely nothing. There's no power in anything I say unless what I teach is from the Word of God. Because as the Word of God goes out, it does not come back empty. It does not come back void. As the Word of God goes out, right now as you sit here today or as you're listening to this tape, wherever you are, the reality is this. The question for you is the same. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Messiah, Savior, the only way to get to heaven by putting your faith and trust in Him? If you do, the Bible says you will look forward to one day to a resurrection of your body that will be decaying somewhere. It'll be reunited with your soul and your spirit. And you'll have a resurrected body that is born incorruptible where this one's corruptible. It'll be indestructible. It'll be absolutely unique. It'll be absolutely phenomenal. And we're going to talk about what we can look forward to in the future. But the question is this. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you think that all roads lead to heaven, I want you to clearly pray and understand what you've heard today. Because the Bible says there is no other name or authority under heaven by which man can be saved. There's only one way, Jesus said, I and the Father am one. You cannot believe in God without truly believing in Him. It says that there's no other way to heaven but through me. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One day you will stand before him, having heard the truth, and you will be without excuse. You will see the, the, the nail wounds. You will see the side wound. You will see the wounds in his feet. You will see the stripes on his back. You will see the thorns that were in his head. And you will realize then, much to your detriment, but to the glory of God, that he is truly Lord. And so I would recommend to you that you get right with God today because the day is the day of salvation. If he's speaking to you, you need to confess your sin, agree with God, believe in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says for those who do, they become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And you can look forward to an eternity like the rest of us who have trusted in him and an eternity with God and a resurrected body in the presence of God for all of eternity in a place that he calls heaven that he's prepared just for us. Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you for your truth. We just pray that... That as your word goes out, we just thank you that it never comes back empty. God, I don't know the hearts of those who are here, but obviously you do. Because you know the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know every person that's here. You know every person that came, every person that didn't come. You know every situation and event in every one of our lives. So you are the perfect judge. And as we stand before you one day, we'll not be able to make any excuse for those who rejected Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they will, they will stand excuseless before they are condemned for all of eternity. For those of us who are standing before him for the purpose of rewards and a position of responsibility in your kingdom, we also know that we'll be without excuse and there's nothing that we can say because you've given us your word to teach us truth so that we can act accordingly. And we just thank you and praise you that your word is truth that you're to separate us from the world around us and that we're to live a life that's pleasing to you, worthy of our calling. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.